Well, our first scripture reading today will be from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. I'll read the last part of, uh, of chapter 52. It's on page 613 in the Pew Bible. And we'll read into chapter 53 a bit. So beginning with verse 13 of chapter 52 of Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, I think every commentator from across the theological spectrum, they all agree that this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And surely the people who were alive when Jesus walked the earth were aware of this prophecy. They heard it read in the synagogues. They'd heard it many times probably, but apparently, by and large, it was not appreciated the full and deep meaning of what it meant to be the Messiah. The servant of the Lord was not appreciated. So this passage is uh, one of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And the prophet's message highlighted the fact that the coming Messiah was to be a true servant of the Lord. But I think the people had missed what being the Lord's servant implied. They no doubt paid attention to the first words that we read, that the coming Messiah would be high and lifted up and be exalted. And of course, Jesus was exalted when he came to the earth, but he was not exalted by everyone. And he was not exalted in the way that most people expected. The expectation for the Messiah seemed to be one of a political or military leader that would extricate the Jews from the iron fist rule of the Roman Empire and perhaps set up a a grand 
military kingdom replicating the glory of that of King David, for instance. So how did the strong arm of the Lord work through his servant, his only son, to accomplish this task of conquering the nations and, in effect, closing their mouths? Well, it was not through a kingly action of military strength. The Messiah was to be a king indeed, but he was to be not an earthly king. His kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was a heavenly one. And his saving work involved priestly action. Note that he was to sprinkle many nations, indicating something like the sprinkling of blood from a sacrifice. And also note that many nations were to benefit from this sprinkling, not just Israel. Some who had not been directly told this prophecy would see it. And Isaiah says that some who had not directly heard the prophecy would understand it. So the effect of the coming servant of the Lord would go out from Israel and would have a much broader effect, a much far reaching effect than just on the nation Israel. And chapter 53 asks, who has believed? Who has understood what the strong arm of the Lord will accomplish? The Messiah was not to burst on the scene with great fanfare and military strength. Rather, he was planted. He was planted like a seed and even that in dry ground. He was planted in amongst a nation that was by and large unfaithful, that was by and large unbelieving. And he grew up there. He grew there and, and um, matured in the midst of the very people who he came to save, and they did not recognize him. He had no form of majesty, no beauty, he was despised, he was rejected, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, not esteemed, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised. He did not inflict wounds on others in order to conquer. Rather, it was by his wounds that he gained victory, victory over dark spiritual forces, victory over sin. And the recipients of that victory, all who now see and all who now understand who the suffering servant really truly is and believe in him, are healed. But only through the wounds that the suffering servant Messiah suffered himself as he came to save his sheep. So why do his sheep need that healing? Well, it's because we have all gone astray. But all of his sheep, all of his sheep will be brought back, will be gathered up to the Lord again and reconciled to him because their iniquity, their sin, our sin, was laid upon the suffering servant. We'll pick up a couple of the themes from Isaiah's prophecy in this sermon a little bit later. Let's turn again to the word. 
to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to look primarily at verses 22 through 30, but I think for context, I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 1 and read the first 30 verses of John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And now the verses that we're going to concentrate on. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the reading of God's holy word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring that word to our hearts and minds and help us to learn from it today. So it was at the time of the Feast of Dedication that this took place. Now, you can look through the entire Old Testament and you won't find any mention of the Feast of Dedication. This actually was a, a new feast. It was developed many hundreds of years after the Old Testament record ended. That ended about 400 years before Christ came. And it was in about one 65 BC or so that the Feast of Dedication was established and it was established to celebrate the victory that the Jewish nation had over a guy named Antiochus IV who was a Syrian tyrant who had taken over Jerusalem in about 167 BC with the intent of establishing a grand kingdom that would replace the former kingdom of Judah. And to that end, he wanted to suppress the Jewish religion completely. And he outlawed uh, the synagogue meetings. He outlawed the um, Sabbath traditions and practices. And he ordered all five books of the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, to be destroyed. And to cap it off, in 167 BC, I think, he sacrificed an unclean animal, a pig, on the altar of the temple. And that triggered a rebellion. It triggered a rebellion by a man named Jacob Maccabeus, who was the head of the Maccabee family. And they fought against the forces of Antiochus and uh, drove them out and actually repurified and rededicated the temple about three years to the day after that desecration had occurred. And it was because of that that the Jews established this Feast of Dedication, also called the Feast of Lights, because it was a custom of the people to burn candles and lamps in the windows and light up Jerusalem at this time. It's still celebrated today by Judaism. It's called Hanukkah celebrated in the month that we call December. But it was meant at the time to celebrate victory over Antiochus. So why did John choose to mark this moment in the ministry of Jesus as being at the time of the Feast of Dedication? John's Gospel tends to have a purpose. He seems to have a purpose in placing the events of Jesus' life at certain points of Old Testament history, especially at uh, festivals. For instance, at the um, Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, that's in chapter 7 of his gospel. And that feast, by the way, was the time when the Jews remembered the Exodus. They remembered 
crossing the Red Sea waters. They remembered their sojourn in the barren desert and how they were sustained by water miraculously delivered from a rock. It was at that time that John chose to place Jesus' words, come to me and drink living water. So Jesus had taken that image of water that was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles and he chose that time to proclaim himself to be the source of living water. So this Feast of Dedication that John mentions here in chapter 10 established to commemorate the rededication and the purification of the temple was chosen because of the significance of Antiochus. Though he's not a prominent figure in history, he is a prominent figure in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Daniel. He's clearly alluded to in words that, that um, speak of future judgments that God would bring on the nation of Israel and on the temple. And actually, when the time of his death approached, Jesus told his disciples that the physical, earthly temple would soon be destroyed. And two days before his crucifixion, uh, his crucifixion the disciples asked him when that event would take place, when the temple would be destroyed, and when the time of his coming would occur. And Jesus addressed those questions on the Mount of Olives as he sat there looking out across the valley at the magnificent temple building right across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives. He referred the disciples at that time back to the prophet Daniel when he warned them that a time was soon coming when another abomination of the temple would come, which in fact did happen in 70 AD when the temple was again desecrated and this time destroyed. All that happened within a generation of Jesus' death and resurrection. But now in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, it's still several months before that Passion Week, and John realized the significance of the Feast of Temple Dedication as the time when the Jewish people again celebrated their victory over that tyrant Antiochus who was a symbol, a type, if you will, of the coming Antichrist. So it was at this time that, that John related this confrontation between the Jews who were unbelieving and the true Christ to contrast the false Christ or um, that antichrist figure or false expectations of who Christ was actually to be versus the true Christ. So in verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now these people had been waiting and hoping for a Messiah to deliver them from Roman oppression and to reestablish a powerful kingdom in Judah. Messiah is the Hebrew term for the equivalent, really, of 
Christ, which is the English translation of the Greek word Christos. And the word actually literally means the chosen one or the anointed one. Many Old Testament prophecies pointed ahead to a coming Messiah, and by this time in the first century AD, the Jewish people were still looking for that anointed one to come. In fact, in this very Gospel of John back in chapter 1, there's a moment recorded when Andrew, Peter's brother, first encounters Jesus, and he undoubtedly had been influenced by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit to recognize who Jesus was. He went and found his brother Peter and said, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Andrew had heard that testimony of John the Baptist and he believed. He realized and believed that Jesus was the Christ, though for quite a long time after that, the disciples pondered exactly what that meant. To get a picture of that, of their uncertainty, fast forward a little bit to the following spring. During Passion Week at the, in the upper room, uh, Jesus had a discourse with his apostles. I'm going to read a few verses of that which um, just illustrate the uncertainty that the disciples had about who the Christ really was. So John 16, uh, beginning at verse 25, this is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus' inner circle of disciples struggled for some time to understand who Jesus really was, what being the Christ really signified and what being the Son of God truly meant. Coming to a point of belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, can be a process, sometimes a lengthy one. Andrew apparently started that process quickly and came to the point of belief quickly. But in the passage we're looking at today, these Jews who are confronting Jesus at the time of the Feast of Dedication, they do not believe. Look at verses 24 through 26 again. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. 
So immediately prior to this confrontation, as we saw and we read about Jesus' teaching of being the good shepherd, he spoke of sheep, not woolly animals, but people. People are like sheep because they go astray. They're lost without a good shepherd to lead them. He taught them that a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep and that a good shepherd would keep a wolf from snatching the sheep away and scattering the flock. He taught them that as a good shepherd, he would in fact lay down his life for them. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The Jews found those words to be cryptic, to be veiled as to what they meant. So they confront Jesus and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In effect, stop beating around the bush. Stop dodging the question. Are you the Christ or aren't you? Jesus answers directly in verse 25. He says, I have told you, and you do not believe. Now Jesus had said and done many things to indicate that he was in fact the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. For instance, he had just related to them that Good Shepherd teaching that we looked at. And a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 8, John places the words of Jesus at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, another feast that involved lights being burned around Jerusalem, as being the time when Jesus proclaimed himself not only to be the source of living water, but the light of the world one of his several I am statements. In this case, I am the light of the world. So here in John 10, 25, Jesus also alludes to the works that he'd been doing, works such as um, healing the crippled man, healing the blind man, the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. He had proclaimed himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, in fact, the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. He declared that he had the power and authority to forgive sin. These and many other actions and statements all testified to the fact that he was the Christ. But the people did not believe because they were not of his sheep. Jesus' voice had indeed gone out. It had gone out in his various healings, his miracles, in claiming power and authority that really only belonged to the Father, in his proclamation to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of the sheepfold, and the good shepherd himself. Now, if Jesus had openly and concretely termed himself to be the Messiah, his claim would undoubtedly have been taken to be a claim for military power or political power. He would have been expected to set up a rebellion against Rome the way Judas Maccabeus did against Antiochus. But for three years now, Jesus had been proclaiming a heavenly kingdom meant for the poor in spirit, meant for those who humbled themselves enough to realize that they needed spiritual help more than they needed military help or political help. Jesus and his good shepherd voice had indeed gone out, but only 
to his sheep. Only those given to him by the Father could hear it. Only his sheep could understand the spiritual significance of the words and actions and accept them and believe them and believe the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus had been preaching all along. Jesus knew his sheep and only his sheep would follow him. But now a remarkable truth surfaces in verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, gives eternal life. And there are two immediate implications of that statement that he gives eternal life. The first, of course, is that it's a gift. It's not earned. Jesus' sheep being chosen is another way of saying that their heavenly life, their life in the new heavens and earth, their eternal life, is given to them. To be sure there's action on the part of the sheep, they hear his voice, they follow him. But even with those actions, the eternal life remains an unearned, unmerited gift. And second, these words imply that those outside the sheepfold, those outside the kingdom, do not receive the gift of eternal life, but rather they're just desserts, namely eternal death. They don't live forever in the blissful security of the kingdom where everything is made right, where the tears are dried and pain is taken away, where there's no mournfulness, where death itself ceases. Revelation 21.4 says, the former things have passed away and death is no more. But for those who are not of Christ's sheepfold, the former things have not passed away. It seems that their spiritual death goes on forever. So when you hear the shepherd's voice, you can see the importance of following it. There's a third immediate implication of the fact that Jesus gives eternal life. It means that if there's a Christ, a Savior, who provides this gift, there is an Antichrist who tries to take it away. And here's where we find the reason that John marked this whole episode as happening at the Feast of Dedication. Again, the time that the Jews gained victory over the dictator Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a real person in history, but his significance was basically as a type or a forerunner of the coming Antichrist, as alluded to by Daniel, and by Jesus referring back to Daniel in that Olivet Discourse, when he seemed to blend prophecies about the temple destruction and the end of the Jewish age in 70 AD with his future second coming at some time in the unknown future. So it seems that there very well may be a specific person in future world history who we could label the Antichrist, but to be certain the spirit of the Antichrist is here now. 
John himself, in his subsequent letters after he wrote this gospel, made mention of this. He wrote words such as, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So recall that in John's Gospel, we read that there would be a wolf who might come and try to snatch the sheep away and scatter the sheepfold. This is the Antichrist, or the spirit of Antichrist, if you will. But in verse 28, Jesus promises that none of his sheep will perish, and no one, no wolf, no Antichrist, will snatch them away, will snatch them out of his hand. How can Jesus be so certain of this? Well, he's certain because he shares the purpose and the power of his Father, the creator and the sovereign Lord of everything. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus is one in purpose with his Father, and that purpose is to save a people. But how can we be certain that Jesus' claim to be able to give eternal life is true? Because in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is not only one in purpose with the Father, but he's one in essence, or one in nature with the Father. He is, in fact, divine. He is, in fact, God the Son. He possesses the power and authority that only God has to forgive sin, to give eternal life. And the Jews understood this. We know that because the next verse, verse 31, says that they began to pick up stones to stone him for the crime, <clears throat> the crime of blasphemy. They understood that Jesus' words were, in effect, claiming equality with God. And they did not believe that that was the case. They did not believe that he was truly the Christ, and they didn't understand what the Christ was to, was to do. So in denying that Jesus was the Christ, they apparently had themselves been snatched away by the wolf, by the Antichrist, by the spirit of Antichrist. However, for those who believe, what is the significance of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead as we celebrated last week at Easter? That his life was lived in perfect obedience? That his death on the cross atoned for our disobedience? And that his being resurrected from the grave makes certain the promise of eternal life for all of those who do believe? And the resurrected Christ gives us security in that belief. No one. No one can snatch his sheep from his hand. So there might be times of doubt for believers. There might be times of uncertainty. There might be times when we're brought down by failure to be obedient, by recurrent sin, by doing something or thinking something again that we thought we had left behind. 
times when, <clears throat> when we become curved inward again and start thinking of ourselves, rebelling against God's way, wandering like sheep, wandering from the fold, you might struggle with your faith. You might succumb to a recurrent sin tendency. You might find yourself occasionally doing the very thing you don't want to do. But despite these trials, the trials of life, despite the dark night of the soul or times of doubt, despite falling into sinful patterns of thought and behavior, if we continue to cling to Christ and as we do so, as we sincerely follow him, no one, no thing, can snatch us from the hand of the resurrected Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this. We thank you that if we share in his death, we will certainly share in his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that your voice has gone out. We thank you that we have been privileged and gifted to hear that voice. We pray that you help us to hear it and help us to follow it. Help us to endure through the trials with the great promise of eternal life that lies before us. The certainty that we have in the resurrected Christ of our ultimate destiny and the fact that we will not lose it, that no one can snatch us out of your hand, that we won't slip through your fingers. We praise you and give you glory because of this, and we just ask that you help us to live our lives accordingly. We pray these things for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.